invite you to take your scriptures and turn to Mark chapter 10 today. Those verses we read just a little bit earlier. The text, in my estimation, begs us to ask the question, and I want to ask and answer it today in the few minutes we have together, and that is, namely, why did Jesus come? I mean, verse 45, some commentators have said, is really the central theme of the entire gospel of Mark, and it certainly is of uh, this passage. Why did Jesus come? Well, I think if you'll follow me this morning, the answer to that question will both tell you how you can live with Jesus in heaven someday, and it will tell you how you can live for Jesus on earth today. And I hope to do both of those things. The answer to the question, why did Jesus come? Well, he came to die so that you could live, and he came to live so that you could die. And if you don't understand his life purpose, I'm going to be bold and say this, you also won't understand your life purpose either. His life and his death give meaning to your life and death. Without that, you lose it. You lose meaning. To misunderstand why he was here will also mean that you will misunderstand why you are here. And so it is crucial on multiple levels today that we answer the question biblically and correctly, why did Jesus come? Jesus answers the question for us. Why did he come? Well, he gives us a negative answer of why he didn't come, and he gives us a positive answer of why he did come. And those two answers will put on display radically uh, two different kingdoms, um, man's kingdom and God's kingdom. And you might be surprised because the disciples were that they thought they knew the difference between the two and they thought that they were living in God's, but in reality they, they weren't because they did not understand the very thing that Jesus is saying. For even the Son of Man, verse 45 says, did not come, hear me, to be served, but rather in contrast to serve. See, he did not come to earth so that you could serve him. This is astounding as the God-man. He did not come to the earth so that you could serve him. He came to serve you. The Son of God became the Son of Man, not to get service, but to give service. The phrase and title Son of Man is mentioned 28 times in the Gospels, and all 28 of them Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. 14 out of those 28 times are used in the Gospel of Mark. Half of them are in our Gospel and one of them in our text. And the Son of Man is a term that is drawn from the prophet Daniel and Ezekiel. And we could really say it this way, that the God one has become the human one. And that's what takes place when Jesus comes to the earth. And as the God one who became the human one, you think that he would come so that people immediately would give him praise, that people immediately would do his bidding and they would do his will, and that the main goal of him being here would be to have others serve him because he is God. But profoundly, the opposite is true. He deserved to be served. But instead, he serves others. You see, that marks Christianity off as different from any other religion in the world. Because in Christianity, our God does not need our service. You look at all the gods of mythology and all the gods of Roman and Greek mythology in the past, and even gods of false religions and cults, is they, their gods 
come and they want the service of those they worship. They want them to give the gods something. But completely antithetical to that is why Jesus came. As God, he did not come to be served. He came to be our servant. He came to be our servant. And as a Christian, when you become a child of God, when you begin to follow Jesus and become his disciples, here's the startling reality that floods your soul, is that he did not come so that you could be his helper but that he could help you. He is not here so that you could be his benefactor, but that he could be yours. See, in in knowing that and understanding and believing and then living out that concept is an incredibly humbling thing. James and John, they missed it. And that's why they asked the question that they did. They viewed the kingdom of God and their discipleship and following Jesus as something that was about them mainly, about what they could get and where they could sit and what the kingdom meant for them. And see, James and John wanted the kingdom to be about people serving them, but not so much them serving others. In our text, and I want to point it out to you if you look in your scriptures, in order for you to get the kingdom concept that Jesus is putting, to be able to live your life not so others can serve you, but to serve others, it's going to demand and require a change from the inside out. And I want to point out a word to show you where we have to start today. In chapter 10, same, in the beginning, they say teacher. And, and teacher is a, a rabbi term. It means he has authority. And so he has the ability to give them what they want. And so James and John come to him and they say this, teacher, verse 35, we want. See, this is what we really desire. After following you for three years, This is paramount in the affections of our heart. This is what we really desire from you. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want you to write a blank check and put your name at the bottom of it. Wouldn't that be great? And Jesus says in response, what do you want me to do for you? And and in that text, the word want is the same word in the Greek. It means this is what I desire. This is really what I crave. This is what I think will do it for me, what satisfies me. Now, they think they want seats at his right hand and left. Later on in the text, can I show you the contrast? Jesus begins to change their whole concept of thinking about what his kingdom is about and therefore what they should want. Look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus changes it and says, but whoever would, and the word, same word, the word, excuse me, the word would is the same word up in the earlier verses for desire, for wanting. Let me read it to you this say, whoever desires or wishes to be great among you, see, must be your servant. See what he's saying? You're really wanting the wrong thing. And whoever would, there it is again, desires to be first, should be the slave. In Jesus' kingdom, what you should be asking is too often the opposite of what we ask of him. See, we want him to do this and give us this position and put us up. And he says, oh, no, no, you've got it wrong. You should be wanting to be a servant. You should want to be last, not first. See, James and John were not looking for humility. They were looking for glory. They were not looking to serve, but they were looking to be served. And it was the complete antithetical opposite of what Jesus was all about. And so Jesus wants for them and for us to know this, that if you're going to have the kingdom change that you need to truly know me and to follow me, you're going to have to change at the most basic, deepest, rooted part of your life what you really desire, what you really want. What they really wanted 
was glory. And in a shame and honor culture, they wanted Jesus to exalt them. They didn't want to get low. They wanted to be put high, see. And in verse 37, they said, just let us be one on your right and one on your left. And see, at the future messianic banquet that the Old Testament talks about and, at the, and Revelation talks about the New Testament, there's going to be a day when God's going to have a banquet and he's going to have all of his people there and there will be someone on his right hand and his left and those places are places of honor and prestige and power. They're not places of servanthood. I find it to be ironic, and I think you will too, that in the Gospel of Mark, the only time two people are ever said to be on Jesus' right and on his left hand are who? The two revolutionary criminals who were crucified next to him. Isn't that amazing? That here are James and John wanting crowns and glory and to be on his right and his left, but the only two people are unnamed criminals who aren't getting crowns, but they're getting crosses. And there's no glory, but only shame. And perhaps it's there for us to understand the paradox. See, they wanted glory, but Jesus, he wasn't having glory first. It was the cross first. And I can understand why James and John might have wanted to do that because earlier in Mark's gospel, chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus talked about when he would come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And they they heard that. They said, wow, Jesus is going to come back and establish the kingdom and look at the glory of the angels. It's going to be a great day. We want to be right there at the top. Chapter 9, this same gospel, the very chapter before this, Jesus was transfigured before them. And the Bible says he went from looking normal to having his face and his, all of his clothes shine as, as white as anyone could possibly be. He was shining with glory. And so they heard about him talk about his glory. They even saw a preview of his glory. And so in their mind, this is what they're thinking, that following Jesus and his kingdom is all about the glory that I could get. And they're going to have to learn that it's not glory but Gethsemane that he's after. It's not glory but Golgotha that really marks God's followers. And what you see in the text, and I want to point it out to you, four times in a row in in this dialogue between Jesus and James and John, Verse 36 has it, 37, 38, 39. It's the little phrase, they said this, but Jesus says this. And all of those are contrasts. He says, they say one thing, and he says something the completely opposite. And the reason the Bible puts those little grammatical points in there is because their thinking and Jesus' thinking are polar opposites. They're extremely opposites. And the surprising part, if you can follow me, is this. Just a few verses before our text, in verses 32 through 34, Jesus tells them that when they actually get to Jerusalem, as that's where they're heading, that when they, the, the rulers and the priests are going to spit on him and mock him and beat him and flog him and crucify him. And this is not the first, not the second. This is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has told his disciples this very thing. He has tried to say it as clearly as possible that following me and being in my kingdom is not first about crowns but crosses. And I'm going to show you that when I die in Jerusalem on one. But they never got it. They never got it. And it's possible. It's possible that you are here this morning. And you could sit in pews like this week after week, month after month, year after year, and your whole idea of what it means to know God, what it means to follow God, what it means to be in his kingdom, you just don't get it. 
You don't get it. You think it's about crowns, what Jesus can do for you. And so can I tell you this? Because of that misunderstanding in our lives and that error of comprehension, see, here, see, we ask crown questions instead of cross questions. Crown questions are about what Jesus can do right, for us, what we can do for our, he can do for us. It's about ourselves. It's not about others. But cross questions, see, they're, they're completely different. They're about what others are like and what comes first for them and how we can serve people and how we can put them above ourselves. See, we ask crown questions instead of cross questions because we really don't understand the kingdom of Christ. We don't have the desire that he wants us. And let me ask you a question. Let me probe a little bit today. Why do you come to church? Why do you come to church? According to Jesus, there would be only two alternatives. You come to church to serve or to be served. See, we come because we want to give something, worship to God, glory to God, or we want to primarily get something. See, one is a crown mentality and one is a cross mentality. And and I've heard, I want to come to church and I, I want them to have programs for me. See, I come to church because you should be able to give me things. And the main reason is, is I have this need in my family, and, and this is, we're a couple, and we need you to have this kind of a ministry. And, and I need you to have stuff for my marriage. And I come here because, you know, my kids are this age, and you should have this program and that program. And there's nothing wrong with having programs, and we offer quite a few of them. But can I tell you this? It's not the right reason and motivation for being here. You know what we come for? We come to serve, not to be served. See, I want the youth group to have activities for me, teenagers might say. I want it to revolve around, and if it's not something I like or I don't, you know, I might not show up for that. I I want the worship services to be for me. I I want it to be run like I think it should be run, and I want to have the things in it and the music in it and this kind of preaching. And I, 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 see, I want that. I want to be able to call those. I want the worship services to be like that. I, I want people at the church to talk to me. See, when I'm not talking to anyone, I'm just sitting, I want you to go over there and find me, and I want you to reach out to me. And if you find out that I have a need, I want you to help me to meet that need. I want you to sit next to me when no one else is sitting next to me. And all those are good things. But the reality is, what if we came to church for completely the opposite reasons? What if I came to church not with a crown mentality, but with a cross mentality. And I said, I want to come to church to serve others. And I want to work in the programs, not have the programs be about me, but have me be in the programs for others. What if I went to youth group and the reason was not who was there, but how I could help them? What if it wasn't the game or the activity that we're doing? What if it was the opportunity I had to have others see Jesus in me? I I don't come to the worship services because it's about me first, because it's about God first. And, and what if it was about others first and myself last? And, and, and so what if I came to church and I came not to be talked to by others, but what if I came to to talk to people who maybe no one else is talking to? Maybe my goal in coming to church should be not so that people would notice when I'm gone for a week or two, but I would notice whether other people are gone for a week or two. Maybe it's not because my needs I come to church for only, but what, is, what if I reached out to other people and I actually knew what some of the church people's needs were and I actually just addressed them and acted on them in my life. See, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 38, when they ask Jesus for what they want, he says this to them, and it's relevant today, isn't it? You don't know what you're asking. 
Do you hear what he says? You really don't know what you're asking. You're asking crown questions when you should be asking cross questions. See, and that's because they had the wrong mentality. Their mentality was Jesus and his kingdom was all about them when it was really all about others. Verses 39 and 40 just make it clear as day that we just don't understand what it's really going to cost us, do we, to follow Jesus. But I can tell you this, with all that's taking place in America today, we better start to realize it. I mean, they overestimated themselves, as I mentioned earlier. And Jesus says, hey, here's the cup I'm going to drink, and it's going to be the cup of suffering. It's the cup of redemption. In, in a Seder meal, if you're Jewish and you sat down at a Passover meal, you have four cups during the meal. The first one, and these are all based on little phrases in Exodus 6, 6, and 7. The cup of sanctification is the cup called Kaddish. And it means holy, set apart in Hebrew. And, it, and the Exodus part is when God brought them out, he says, I will bring you out. And they celebrate that. The second cup is the cup of deliverance. When God said in Exodus 6, I'll deliver you from Egyptian bondage. And they drink the cup of deliverance and remember him. The third cup, the one that Jesus is referring to the text, where he says, I'm going to drink this cup, is the cup of redemption. It's also called the cup of suffering. And Jesus is remembering In Exodus 6, where God told his people that I will ransom you or I will redeem you. And he's telling them that, see, you follow me and in my kingdom it's not about crowns. It's about crosses. It's not about success. It's about sacrifice and suffering. He says, this is the cup that I'm going to drink. And this cup was so powerful. You don't need to turn there. But in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the actual drinking of the cup, not metaphorically in the Passover meal, but literally he's going to drink the suffering cup of redemption. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, he prays this to give you how powerful the cup is. He says, Abba, Father, the only time in the Gospels. The only time he cries out and uses the personal name Abba, he says, Abba, Father. He goes, nothing is impossible for you. And so he says, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. That's the cost. Jesus knew the cost and the sacrifice of what it would take to be our redemption, to bring us out of slavery, of sin. He knew it. And he says, Father, in his humanity, please remove this cup. But, but listen to this. But not my will but your will be done. See, that's what Jesus is pressing on the disciples, that here's the mentality of the Jesus kingdom, because he models it, is that I am willing to serve others. But Pastor Walker, to what extent? I mean, what extent do you really want me to go to? To the furthest extent, that's what he says. I want you to be so committed to loving others first, to being last yourself, that you would sacrifice everything to do it, he says. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized? And not baptized in the baptistry, but the word baptized means to immerse, to dunk. It means to be overwhelmed. Will you be able to handle it when you drink the cup after I've gone back to heaven and you follow me and you witness for me? You're going to drink the same kind of cup. You're going to suffer for me. If you follow me and give the gospel and you live for me and I'm first in your life, here's what he says. You're going to drink this cup. You're going to be overwhelmed with the opposition 
that people give you for following me. He goes, will you be able to handle that? And they say we are able, but they they really don't know what they're talking about. And the next verse in verse 41 gives us an idea because when the other ten disciples find out that James and John are vying secretly for positions of power in the kingdom, they're very upset. The Bible says they're very displeased. And by the way, you know what's interesting? You know how toxic this crown mentality is, this I need to be served by others mentality? In all the uses of James and John's name in the Gospel of Mark, do you know the only one time that James and John are not mentioned with Peter is this text? Because they're the three who go with Jesus everywhere. They go into the room and he shuts the door and and raises the girl from the dead. Those three are there. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's only those three. It's his inner circle. It's their best friends. James, John, Peter are buddies. They're closest. But you know what? The crown mentality has overtaken their mind and heart so much that you know what they want? They want what they want so much that they're willing to exclude and leave Peter out of it. See, that's what happens, that we have our own purposes and we have our own agendas so much. We have bought into the empire world mentality around us that we must be served, that we even begin dividing and excluding ourselves from others. Mark 9, don't turn there, one chapter back. Jesus asked his disciples one time when they were walking this last time to Jerusalem, And he said, what are you talking about? And you know what? The Bible says, and they kept silent. They didn't want to say out loud what they are talking about. But Jesus knew, and the Bible says, he knew they were talking about which one of them would be the greatest. Which one of them would be the greatest? It's the crown mentality. Which one of them would be the position where everyone could serve them? See? See, Jesus comes to the disciples And he he sees that they're angry with each other. And he calls them to himself. And look what he says in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know. Now now contrast verse 38 where it says, you do not know. And now he's going to say, you know. You don't know what you're talking about when it comes to my kingdom. But you certainly know what you're talking about when it comes to the world's kingdom. You know how things work. In the world's kingdom. And he gives them the explanation. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. Underline it. They lord it over them. That's what marks them. They're great ones. Greatness in the world is being over people. Lording over them, he says. Exercising authority and uses the same prefix. Over them. See, the world's kingdom marks greatness by power over, not service under. See, that's, that's greatness in that kingdom. It's not how hot, low I can get in the world's kingdom. It's how high I can get. The world says that when you rise up in power and you are really great, then people will serve you and you'll be over them and they'll do what you say. And Jesus says, no, it's really in my kingdom is completely the opposite. Now that's hard for us because everything around us in American culture screams the complete opposite of what Jesus' kingdom is truly all about. American politics is about getting the highest level and having the most authority and power and telling people what to do so they can serve you. That's what our nation is built on. That's not what God's nation of people are built on. Our corporate businesses in America are more money, more power, more leverage. 
And therefore, unfortunately, we teach our kids that that's really what success in life and their purpose of their life is to do the same thing, is to get more and to have better education and this and higher, have more money and power so that you can really be someone. And unfortunately, it's not just American politics or American business world that has that mentality. Too often it has come into American churches. Pastors now, instead of using the title in the Bible, the servant of the Lord, we're now CEOs of companies and we're expected to have business techniques and be able to solve all these problems. Deacons no longer are diakonos, servants who help the pastor and people, but now they're executive boards who make authoritative decisions and have very little service at all in what it means to be a deacon. People in the churches are now uh, not people who have service as part of their life, but just come to services. And we've made the exchange. Jesus says, that's how it works in the world. See, the world says, what can you do to serve me? See that, but, but here's what he says emphatically. You see it in verse 43? He says, but this is not, and the word not in the Greek is first, not it shall be among you. This is not how it works in my kingdom. If you're my disciple, that's not how it happens. We do not have a crown mentality. We have a cross mentality. It should be the opposite among us. And so this is what he says. Whoever desires, he says, look at the verse, and whoever would desire among you to be great, he says, would be your servant. And whoever would be first among you would be slave of all. See, here's why Jesus came. He came to change the definition of greatness. He wants to give us a new definition. And to accept the new definition, you have to have, you see this, you have to have a new desire. You'll never get this. You'll never agree with this. You'll never want to live this. You can't live the new definition without a new desire. Do you get that? You have to have a change. And that's where the cross comes in. See, the new definition says it's not how high you can get, but how low you can get. It's not the love of power, but the power of love that makes a difference. It's not standing up and demanding your rights. It's having the servant's heart that's willing to give them up like Jesus did. It's not about being first. It's really about being last. And how far last should I, how far should I go down? Well, you'll be the, Jesus says, you'll be the slave of all. Can I tell you, in the first century world where two-thirds of everybody was a slave in the Roman society, nobody, nobody wanted to be a slave. Nobody desired that. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you would. You want to get on the lowest social rung of the ladder. Yes, rung of the ladder. That doesn't make any sense. You're right. It doesn't make any sense in this kingdom. But in God's kingdom where he turns greatness on its head and he has upside-down values, it makes perfect sense. Only if you have new desires. Can I ask you, how would this desire change the conflicts at times that you have in your marriage? If you were constantly trying to serve your spouse, and it wasn't that you had to be right all the time, but you had to be righteous, how would that change your marriage? and how you viewed your position as husband or wife, and how you viewed finances, and what you thought about how you responded to your spouse when you didn't agree. If you thought that being the slave of all and having a cross mentality was the way to go, what would it do in your marriage? 
What would it do if our teens got a hold of this? What difference would it make in our prayer lives if we stopped always praying for God, give me this, or God, do this for me? What if my prayers were mostly about others and their souls and their spiritual growth and maturity and how God could use me to serve others and give me opportunities? What if those were the things that occupied most of our prayer requests? What if we bought into this to the point where our view of church and ministry was radically, completely transformed? We didn't come to church because we liked it or didn't like it, or the ministry was suiting to my talents and abilities, but I came because I wanted to serve the Lord. What if it was about building his kingdom and not ours? I know what you're going to say. Pastor Walker, that sounds really cool and it's spiritual, and I know it's in the Bible, but what you're asking is impossible. I mean, nobody can really live that way, can they? I mean, are you asking me, if I live this way, I'll be run over in life. I mean, I'm going to be a doormat at work. I mean, everybody that I know who doesn't hold this view, which would be about everybody, will take advantage of me for sure. Can I tell you this? I only know one person who lived this life perfectly, and that was Jesus. You know why I say that? Because look at the last verse and we'll be done. Verse 45 says, see the little word, for? He says, I'm going to give you a reason why it's possible to do this. How can you be, choose, choose to be last and not first? How can you choose a new definition of greatness? Can I tell you how? Because Jesus did. For even, even, listen to that, even, I mean, even Jesus who didn't need to do this, who didn't deserve to do this, but he chose to. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Can I tell you, Jesus' ransom on the cross is the model for how you and I live out this kind of life. Let me close with this. Three quick things. Number one, his ransom, it was intentional. It was intentional. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Jesus came to die. Can I tell you, Jesus didn't die accidentally. It wasn't that he lived a good life and then he wasn't looking for it at the end, but he became a martyr for his cause. No, Jesus, can I say, Jesus walked into the crucifixion fully knowing it was going to happen. It was planned before the foundation of the world. It was part of God's plan and purpose for Jesus and this world. It was on purpose that he died. He says, you know why I came into the world? I came to die a ransom, he says. I came to die. I purposely did this. And listen, you choosing to follow Jesus and be his disciple, you choosing to ask Jesus into your life and, and so that you can be into his kingdom, is not something that happens by osmosis. It's not happens, this happens by chance. No, you know, God wants you to intentionally choose it. Teenagers, he wants you to choose to be different than all the other teenagers. Young adults, he wants you to think differently through life and, and everything that's in it because you follow him and you bought into the cross mentality. See, he wants us as adults to have everything in our lives and our marriage and our families be centered around serving others. Why? He wants you to choose it intentionally. It's not only it was intentional, but can I say this? It was sacrificial. Why was his death called? Why does Jesus say, I gave my life a ransom? 
The word in Greek is lutron, and it means this, a payment to release someone from some sort of bondage, whether you're a prisoner of war and you're in jail because of it, whether you're a slave and you need freedom, whether it's some sort of financial debt that you're in. When you pay the lutron, when you pay the ransom, you're paying whatever it costs to bring freedom to that person in their need. Jesus says to you and to me, see, I did that for you. I am your Lutron. I am your ransom. I, through my cross, death, and resurrection, I paid for your release from bondage. And you say, Pastor Walker, what bondage? John 8, 34, Jesus' own word says, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. You see, you and I are in bondage to our sin. And by the way, I know you might say to yourself, yeah, Pastor, I do sin, but I'm really not that bad. I do a lot of good things. Can I tell you how Jesus views your sin and mine? He doesn't view your sin and mine as, as, as if we're occasional sinners. He views every one of us as in bondage to the power of sin that we can't get out of. See, you may not be as bad as you can be, but you are as bad off as you can be because of your sin. You are in bondage to it. And Jesus says, that's why I came See, I came to show you that I came to serve you. See, you can't give me, you don't, I don't need anything from you, but Jesus would say, but you need everything from me. You need my blood shed on the cross of Calvary to ransom you, to pay the price for your sin so that you can be freed from it. Now get this, this is the most ironic, paradoxical part of it. He says this, remember what he said? You be the slave of all. Do you know what salvation is? Salvation is being from Freed from one slavery so that you could take on another one. Salvation is not being freed so I have no one as my master. No, salvation is being freed from the wrong master, sin, so I can have the right master, Jesus. See, that's what, and that mentality, we're missing it. We're missing it. And it shows up horizontally when we don't serve other people. So Jesus says, my ransom for you was intentional. That's how much I loved you. It's sacrificial. See, I substituted myself. I should say substituted myself for you. And lastly, thirdly, it's substitutionary. He says, I gave my life, listen to this, a ransom for many. For many. Can I ask you this morning, are you in the many? Are you part of the many? Have you understood why Jesus came, who he was, son of man, son of God? Do you realize why he died on the cross for you? He died because you needed him, that you can never be free and liberated from your sin so that you could be with him forever. And you can't do it on your own. See, you can't get into heaven by your service. You have to humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you to serve me. See, it's humbling, isn't it? That you can't offer God anything. But he offers you everything. And that's why we sing of it as grace. (laughs) Grace. God's grace. If you've never trusted him, would you do that this morning? If you've never come, it's not my religion. It's his ransom. That's what changes my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ransom that Jesus paid the price for our sins. He has made it so that we could be freed from the bondage that we are so enslaved to in our sins. 
You're the only liberating force that has that ability. And for those who are here today in person or watching, Father, have never come to the realization that it's not whether you're Baptist or Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian or Methodist. It's about have I come to the place where I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he was the ransom for my sins. I pray, Father, that you would work to that end in their lives today, that, Lord, they might live for your glory. And for believers who have experienced by faith the ransom that you've given, Father, may we understand fully and clearly, like never before, that that's the model for our lives every day, not just to get us in heaven, but to get heaven to us. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.